Hi, I'm Will Schwalbe, and this is But That's Another Story. When I was growing up, I went to an Episcopal boarding school in New Hampshire. Not only did we have to go to chapel every weekday morning, we had to be on time. To help make sure we weren't late, the chapel bells would give us a three-minute warning at 7.57. This inspired a kind of procrastination Olympics, all of us vying to see how close we could cut it and still be on time. One friend was the undisputable champion, a legend. He could be in bed when the bells started chiming and still somehow managed to throw on some clothes, grab his backpack, and run the quarter mile to the chapel before the doors closed at eight. But that performance would have merely earned him a silver in the Procrastination Olympics. He turned it into a gold by hiding a school book inside his hymnal and starting and finishing the day's assigned reading while everyone else was singing and praying. At the time, that seemed daring to the point of blasphemy. But looking back on it now, I think of it differently. Maybe there's something quite wonderful about reading in church, even if it's coursework. Even if it's because you haven't done what you should have done when you should have done it. After all, for me, and I suspect many others, reading is a kind of prayer, an act of radical empathy, an expression of faith. And recently, I got to talking about faith with today's guest. My name is Brittany Cooper. Um, By day, I'm Associate Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Africana Studies at Rutgers University. And by night, I'm a Black feminist troublemaker. Brittany Cooper is a professor, writer, and cultural commentator. She's the co-founder of the Crunk Feminist Collective blog, and her latest book is Eloquent Rage. The book is a memoir about family, friendship, faith, and her path to embracing her identity as a black feminist. And that's a story that starts way back when she was a kid. I grew up in Louisiana in a small town in the northern part of the state, about as far from New Orleans as you could get. We went to Walmart for fun. That was small town living and excitement. Aside from excursions to Walmart, there were a few other things that kept Brittany entertained. TV shows like Gem and the Holograms and Saved by the Bell, talking to the kids next to her in class, and reading. Some of my earliest memories include my mother's nightly ritual of reading a bedtime story to me, particularly Lil' Golden books. I loved Lil' Golden books, the Berenstain Bears, Disney characters, all of it. I got my first Babysitter's Club book when I was eight years old. I was in the third grade. The Scholastic Book Fair came to town. The Scholastic Book Fair is an amazing thing. I don't know if they still have them, but they would send you home with these brochures. And I remember seeing a book that said Babysitter's Club, and I thought, I want that. And so I get to the book fair. I beeline for the number eight title in that series. It was a book called Boy Crazy Stacy. I loved the girls in that book because they were friends, and they did cool things, like they went on adventures together. And they lived in a faraway place called Connecticut, which a little girl from Louisiana wouldn't know anything about. They were a main staple of my childhood. My mom says she didn't ever think that I would ever give up the babysitters. And, you know, I haven't actually ever given them up. I still know the names of every character uh, in that series. uh, And I still have each and every Babysitter's Club book that I have ever owned. And Brittany's infatuation with reading didn't stop there. In the summertime, my mom would take me to the local library and drop me off. And I would sit all day. So I would read books all day. And then I would come home with a stack of books. 
the library didn't ever have the biggest stash of like babysitters clubs. So I read Boxcar Children and Nancy Drew Mysteries. So I got my mysteries from the library. That's the thing that I remember. And I also read like Mildred Taylor books. So she was the first black children's author that I read uh, because they had Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry and Let the Circle Be Unbroken. Do you remember what the experience was like as a kid reading the first children's book you'd read by a Black author? I do. And the thing that I remember about Mildred Taylor, so there's a lot of Black dialect in that book. And mostly what I remember thinking was, oh, the people in this book talk like my grandmother talks. My grandmother was a country Southern lady. And so she used the kind of dialect that you would hear in a book like Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. I can hear the voices in that book because they sound like my grandmother and even my great-grandmother. And so I loved that in reading that I could hear the voices immediately. That made the book feel authentic to me. It felt familiar to me and I, and I was thankful for that. And I don't think I knew that you could tell stories that had black characters in them, particularly black characters that sounded like black people that I knew. And while she spent most of the week reading or watching reruns of The Brady Bunch, if it was a Sunday, there was only one place Brittany was going to be. So church is a thing for black Southern church kids that's just in the ether. It is a thing that you do. The earliest memories I have are of having to get dressed up with lots of lace and patent leather shoes. And I was the first girl grandchild in my family. So they were like, you are a doll and you will get your hair done and you will put on these lacy dresses and these roughly underwear. And I hated it because it was itchy. But when we got to the actual church service, I remember the sounds in that little old country church of the way that they sung hymns. So one of my favorite hymns remains the song called Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. But the reason why I love it is there's a way that Southern country Black people sing it. They sing it very slow and they keep the beat by tapping their feet on the wood of the church. So if you go and hear a sophisticated choir sing it today, it sounds totally different. And when I heard my college choir sing it many years later, it was like blasphemy to me. I was like, what is this? Right? Because there is a way, there is a, you can hear the blues tradition in the way country black folks sing that song. I remember the day, I was thinking recently of the day that my mom made me sit up in church. You know, the preacher got up and I laid down on the pew and she was like, you're too old for that, sit up. And I was like, this is terrible. Who wants to listen to this preacher talk for like an hour or something? And at some point, you know, you when you grow up like that, you you start to listen to to the stories that the preacher tells. And as Brittany started listening to those stories, she found herself getting into church that same way she had gotten into the Babysitter's Club books. She liked it a lot. But as a smart, precocious kid, Brittany says the thing that she liked about church was not the thing that most people liked. I actually wasn't swayed by the singing or the charisma. I thought it was all perfectly fine, but I actually wanted to hear the reading of the scripture. And I wanted a preacher to show me some things in it that I hadn't seen before in the story. So a really intellectual, cerebral approach. I felt embraced by a church community. 
These were folks that I knew prayed for me, cared about my well-being. You know, there was the time when my pastor, my mom couldn't get off work and I had a Girl Scout meeting. And so my pastor came in his gray Cadillac and took me to Girl Scouts, you know. These were the, you know, the, um, the folks in my community and they took up the slack and they helped out when they could. But Brittany was a natural skeptic and she had questions. They would say, if you don't believe this, you're going to hell. But I had lots of questions. Is God really real? You know, I had questions about dinosaur. Like, I didn't understand the creation story. And, you know, my skepticism was a private skepticism for the most part. I had questions, but I didn't necessarily vocalize those questions. And at some point, I began to care more about getting the right answers than retaining my right to the questions. I was an ambitious kid. I got told very early, you're smart and you can be anything and you can have a life much bigger than this very small town. But the way that black people tell you things like that in the deep south is they say, baby, put, put God first. And so I took that far more dogmatically than they, I think, intended. They meant stay connected to a spiritual center. What I heard was, Figure out all the rules and ace God just like you ace test, right? Ace God just like you ace every subject in school. The older I got and the more that I went to church and the more important religion as dogma became to me, then what I would simply do is slap away my own questions. I didn't even need an adult to do it for me. Soon, Brittany found herself becoming the most devoted member in her family. You know, I would go to Sunday school. My mother didn't make me go. It felt like safety. That kind of, like, here are a set of principles to live by. They are definitive. If you do these things, you will be successful. Bad things will not befall you. As I'm talking, one of the things I'm also realizing, maybe to give myself a little grace, is that the reason I was very concerned about bad things befalling me is that my real father had been tragically killed when I was nine. Um, and so I did have an, a sense that terrible things could come out of nowhere. And I blamed him because he was a volatile man, violent, struggled with addiction. And so there was a way to think about his death as the culmination of a lot of bad choices. And so it's, I had not reflected that some of the, some of my investment in the definitiveness of faith uh, was about wanting to not have to deal with more tragedy. And so that is what I liked about church was that it was a place to go and to think about your inner life. But there was also a blueprint, a map. Um, and I like blueprints and maps. That's what church came to mean to me is that I wanted very badly to make something of myself. Um, and I felt like I needed God to do it. When we come back from the break, Brittany comes across a book that tears up that blueprint. Church had always been big in Brittany Cooper's life even during college, when she described herself as a what-would-Jesus-do kid. But when she entered a Ph.D. program at Emory University, many of her old questions began creeping back up. 
the whole goal of my childhood has been get to college and God will help you. So I get through college and do great. And I'm still a devotee of all this stuff. And then I go into a PhD program, which is a whole other level of like questioning, reading Western philosophy, really thinking more deeply about some things. And I began to have questions. So I would be at church going, well, well, what about intersex people in the creation story? And so I remember saying that to a teacher and him saying, well, those people, God just doesn't intend for those people to have like be in romantic relationships. And I knew that that was, I was like, oh no, that doesn't sound right. And soon, Brittany found that not only did church not have the answers, people also didn't want her to ask questions. At some point, I get called, I like to say I got called into the principal's office. I got called into the office of the director of Christian education, who said, you know, it's fine if you have questions, but really people just want you to shut up. Who says that to someone? And so that was the moment that the story began to turn for me when I realized that there was a limit, to, a real limit to the kinds of questions I could ask. And I had a classmate in one of those classes tell me that she, you know, I was like, I know that y'all think that I'm like the spawn of Satan. She was like, I do think you're the spawn of Satan. And I was like, oh, well, well. The good thing about you know, I think being an only child and having like intense mama time with someone who is deeply like committed to your development is I was like very confident in my own opinions. And I, I was like, oh, I'm not wrong about these questions. I, you know, these questions need to be asked. And the fact that you all don't have any answers means there's a problem with you. It's not a problem with me. So I had enough sense to know that, but I didn't know what you then did. It was around that time that she came across a book by a young evangelical woman named Rachel Held Evans. Faith Unraveled. Originally published as Evolving in Monkey Town, a reference to the Scopes Monkey Trial that was held in the author's hometown, the book takes the reader through Evan's spiritual journey. As I was reading her story, we're around the same age. She grew up in small town, well, Birmingham, Alabama, so deep south. She had all the questions that I had. And so she had the questions I had, and I could tell in reading even just the introduction to the book that she had all the fear that I had, too, about what it meant to ask the questions. And, you know, and there was this line where she talked about the need to get everything right, God right, the Bible right, the answers right. And I was like, yeah, that's it. I was like, that was the thing that I was most worried about, being wrong. Still, I, I would say it's still a problem today, that what I most worry about is getting the wrong answer. What do you think will, would happen if you got the wrong answer? What's you the know, consequence? You know, it's like, for me, it feels like the wrong answer about religion, like if I started challenging all this stuff and, and I was wrong, then the stakes, it felt like stakes for my soul eternally. Like, you know, I couldn't... Like, I couldn't imagine a world where the consequences wouldn't be terrible. You knew the right way. You stepped out of the path. Now your life is going to fall apart. All the good things that you wanted, that you worked for, you're not going to have any blessings. Everything's going to fall apart. It felt like getting the wrong answer on the test and getting a failing grade. But reading Faith Unraveled started to change that for Brittany. Part of what Faith Unraveled did for me, it just helped me to realize that part of who I am as a person with questions 
that I that it was going to serve me well to ask those questions. And I actually felt like God, the part of myself that I understand to be God speaking. I felt like that part of myself said, you're going to miss me because you're trying too hard to get it right. You're going to miss the stuff that happens. There are some good things that can happen when you follow rules, but there's some cool stuff that can happen when you don't. And you're going to miss all the cool stuff because you're trying to do the right thing. And so Faith Unraveled gave me the permission to just be okay with the discomfort of the questions. I'm trying to become a person who doesn't need other people to give me permission, but in that moment, I needed permission. This book gave me permission. And what I appreciate about Rachel Held Evans as a thinker is that she grapples in public with her questions. What does it look like to not have the answers, but to to boldly ask the questions when you're not sure to risk being wrong in public? Because it's very easy to go on these faith journeys and to be like I was as a kid, a person with questions who, who didn't ask them because I was afraid of what would happen. I think <laughs> that she helped me to to be all right without without knowing the conclusions there's a way there's a public performance of that that's one thing and then there's a private desire for certainty and I had to give it all up and to just say I'm going to be in this journey wherever it takes me and I'm going to be okay with that um and and I'm going to be okay with the idea that maybe the questions are part of the journey. What I feel like the God narrative is for me now is like somebody who's on my team wanting me to thrive, but not someone sort of holding a rule book and banging me over the head with it. Yeah. But That's Another Story is produced by Katie Ferguson with editing help from Alyssa Martino and Alex Abnos. Thanks to Brittany Cooper. If you'd like to learn more about the books we mentioned in this week's episode, you can find out more in our show notes. If you've been enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review on iTunes. It really helps others discover the program. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If there's a book that changed your life, we want to hear about it. Send us an email at anotherstory at macmillan.com. We'll be back with our next episode in two weeks. I'm Will Schwalbe. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>